again we've said it, that all that the Christian believes, all that may be said of the good news or the gospel is anchored to the person of Jesus of Nazareth. If he is indeed the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, then we can have confidence in everything that he taught and everything that he has promised. But for us to believe this, there has to be a measure of validation that is so great that it sweeps us into this belief and it has to be something more than the sheer magnetism of his personality. It has to be something more than the rumor of the great miracles that he performed. It has to be something more than the ponderance of his great teaching. It has to be something more than the moral energy or the moral strength or the moral influence of his life. It has to be something greater than even these things in order to validate the faith of the Christian. And without this validation, we're not compelled to believe what Jesus said about himself and about his work and what we ought to do and how we ought to live. We're left only with our own desires and wishes of what we want to be true. But there is a validation for our faith, a validation that drives away wishful thinking and brings us into a point of surrender and submission where we bow before this information or this truth in the same way that Thomas did, and we cry out, my Lord and my God. And the validation that's been given for us for our belief, the validation for our gospel and all his promises that they're all true, it's the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's facing that reality and that truth that causes us to bow ourselves in complete surrender to him. It drives our faith into something that goes beyond philosophy, something that goes beyond mental aspirations to rise with him into a living, enduring confidence that doesn't pass away. It's the kind of confidence that allows a people to form throughout all the world and endure through 2,000 years in the midst of temptations and trials and testings and tribulations, and yet remain a people of deep, profound, unshakable faith and confidence and we want to be a part of that. We want to live in that company and meet them one day before the throne of God and worship of this one that we believe in. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that the Christian community has been birthed, that has been brought into life to a living hope, he says, through, this is what we're saying, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's his resurrection that becomes the foundation the basis upon everything that we believe and all that we hope in. And the question I want to explore this morning briefly is what is it that we hope in? What is it that we confidently proclaim as our faith? What is it that we are secured in believing because of the resurrection? The other day I was kind of running through my mind. Sunday after Sunday in churches all over our city and all over our state and all over our country and all around the world, there are individuals that rise up and they have for the last 2,000 years preaching and teaching and proclaiming information that has been expounded or exposited because of their belief and their confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mining out truth from God's word and instruction for our faith founded upon this formulation and this understanding that Jesus has risen from the dead. Thinking about that, I started thinking of my own life. I started thinking of the, the wonderful privilege it's been to simply add my voice to the ongoing voices and instruction that have been carried out throughout this city and throughout this state and throughout this country and throughout the world for 2,000 years. I started thinking, well, how many times have I preached a sermon on a Sunday morning or a Sunday? And they started adding it up. I came up with a rough estimate of about 
1,500 messages dedicated to understanding and giving application to the great promises that are claimed by the Christian because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And what I want to do this morning is I want to give you a brief survey of the last four sermons that we've preached in our church. It was a study on the final seven words of the Lord Jesus from the cross. So what I want to do here briefly is just state those seven statements. And then we're going to look at them one at a time. And we're going to see how they answer the basic questions of humanity. So follow me quickly. First, while Jesus was being crucified, while they were nailing him to the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Sometime in the middle of the first three hours in which he hung upon the cross, one of the criminals who was next to him, who had initially been mocking him, changed his mind. He confessed instead his sins, and that the punishment he was receiving was what his sins deserved. And he also confessed that Jesus was innocent of all sin. And then he turned to the Lord Jesus, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. You're the Messiah, and you're returning one day to this earth to reign. Remember me. And this led to Jesus' second statement in which he said from the cross to that man who had repented and believed in him, Assuredly, I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. At the end of the first three hours, as Jesus was hanging upon the cross, at the very end of those first three hours, we're told that the Lord Jesus looked down and saw his mother at the foot of the cross, and she was standing next to his apostle John, who happened to be his cousin. So he said to his mother, directing her to John, Woman, behold thy son. And to John, he directed her to Mary, and he said, Behold thy mother. And we're told after that that John took care of Mary, brought her into his home, and took care of her for the rest of her life. The next three hours that Jesus hangs upon the cross, for he hung on the cross for six hours, the next three hours are submerged in darkness and complete silence. And during the middle of this darkness and this complete silence, we understand that Jesus Christ is entering into the anguish, anguish and the suffering for our sins. And at the end of that time period, the Lord Jesus cried out a question of great anguish, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the fourth statement from the cross. After this, shortly after this, after this supreme moment of anguish, the Lord Jesus then cried out, I thirst. He was given something to drink. After he was given something to drink, immediately after that, his throat being moistened by what was given to him, sour wine, we're told. He cried out with a great voice of triumph, It is finished. It is accomplished. In Greek, it's one word, tetelestai. That is the sixth thing he said. And finally, seventh, he proclaimed before those who were before him when watching his crucifixion. And there were likely thousands before the crucifixion at that time who had gathered from all of the regions around for the Passover, the most important feast and celebration for the Jews at that time. He cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And after this, we're told that he gave himself up into death, he laid his head upon his chest, and he died. What I want to do is I want to note three things here first, and then we want to look at all of these statements of the Lord Jesus. And the first thing I want you to note about all of these declarations is this. Each of these declarations reveals a need, a longing, a question even that resonates in the human heart. Each of them do. The second thing I want you to see is that these words, as they're spoken by the Lord Jesus while he's in the midst of the agonies of death, he is revealing to us the extent to which these longings flow through the human heart. They go with us to the very end. They're not trifles. They're rooted deeply in our identities. And even at death's door, we cannot shake these needs, these longings, these questions. They 
define our journey in life to our last breath, Jesus declares them, makes them known, even as he's dying on the cross. Here's the third thing I want you to note about this that we're going to point out, and it's that these words also are expressed by one who then goes and conquers death and rises from the grave. And in doing so, he reveals that he is the one who has the answer for these needs and these longings and these questions that are deeply rooted in our existence. He's the one who allows them to be stirred within us. He's the one who has the answer, the settled answer for all these things. He brings us those answers, and those answers are our good news. They're our gospel. So let's look at them one at a time. The first thing Jesus said was, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. The first great question of the soul is simply this. Is there forgiveness for the guilty conscience? Is there forgiveness for the guilty conscience? Life will reveal to us that we break laws. We break the laws of social expectations. We break the laws of our own expectations for ourselves. You may have forgotten the first time that you ran and hid in some dark corner because you knew you had done something wrong, but you've all done it. You've all done it. We find ourselves in need of forgiveness from others and from ourselves. We can't keep the law of kith and kin. We can't keep the laws of the society that surrounds us. We can't even keep the laws that we make for ourselves that we think are good and appropriate for how we ought to behave. We offend them. We offend ourselves. Have you ever offended yourself? Do it a lot. We offend ourselves. And certainly if these things are true, it also means that we can't keep the law of a holy God. God has made us and designed us to reflect Him and to live in relationship with Him. The Bible actually confirms this. It says that all have sinned and fallen short. Short of what? God's glory, God Himself. So we need forgiveness. Above all, we need God's forgiveness. David knew this. David had been granted by God to be king over Israel, and David used his position of power at some point in a very subversive and wrong way. He committed adultery. He then, as king, orchestrated the arrangement of a man's life so that he'd meet his death so he could cover up his sin. And this press of guilt was placed upon David, and it didn't release itself from David. He had sinned against his nation. He had sinned against his family. He had sinned against this woman. He had sinned against that husband and so many others. But ultimately, when he came to his confession and made it known, its completeness brought to him a place in which he proclaimed to God against you, and you only have a sin and done this evil in your sight. And David wasn't saying that he was innocent of sinning against these other individuals. He was just saying that ultimately the recognition of sin brought him to an understanding that it was before God ultimately that his sin resided. David needed forgiveness and David needed cleansing and David needed the weight of that guilt that was resting upon him to be removed because he had offended the God who had made him king. He had offended the God who had given him life and we're guilty and we know it. We sin and we know it. We've ran to dark places to hide it and we know it. And we have different strategies, by the way, for dealing with that sin. We run from it. We hide from it. We pretend it's not there. We avoid the places and the moments and the things that might remind us of it. I'm reminded as a young man going to East Junior High just down the road. I used to sneak out in the middle of lunch with another friend and Tracy and I would go four-wheeling into the foothills around Boise and I knew I shouldn't be doing it. I knew it was wrong, but we did it anyhow. And so we would sneak out every lunch hour. I was in eighth grade. He was the only eighth grader with a mustache at the time, you know, and he had a, he had a driver's license. And 
So, and he had a car that he was able to drive to school. We drove all over the place. We were driving along the foothills. On more than one occasion, I was told, Tracy, I can't do this anymore because I know I shouldn't be doing this. My parents don't know I'm doing it. I know it's wrong, but I couldn't bring myself to say it to him. And, and then we're up in the foothills, and his car died on the top of one of these hills. And, you know, we couldn't get it started. And I knew if we didn't get down, we weren't going to get back to class in time. You know, they were going to call home to find out where we were at from our parents, etc. I got out of the car and I said, Tracy, let's lay hands on this car and pray that it's healed. <laughs> we didn't, Lord, heal this car. Start it. Well, that didn't happen, but somebody drove by on the top of the football in another truck and he gave us a tow down the hill. But by the time we got back, we had missed the next two or three periods. I just knew my dad was going to find out. I kept waiting Day in, day out, week in, week out. Tracy told me that it was uh, an oil filter that had got clogged, and that's why the car wouldn't start, or something like that, or an air filter. Well, you know, after that, every time there was a commercial that was running constantly, seemed like for a year, on air filters for your car. And every time I saw it, it was like, oh. And I began to figure out when it was going to be on, and so I wouldn't watch television at that time. I just couldn't watch it. Eventually, I told my dad, asked him to forgive me. When we're guilty, we try to run from things, we try to hide from things, we try to ignore the information, we, we try to bury it in some way. And at the cross, we have a story of an, a massive sin that's being committed. The crowd is driven Christ, the pure and sinless one, to the cross. They know he's innocent. They've asked for a guilty person to be released instead of him. They've driven themselves to this awful activity through a number of twisted motivations, some seeking power, others out of jealousy, some for fear of the crowd, others because they're giving retribution to the Lord Jesus because he hasn't given them what they wanted in the moment. Whatever their strategies were, whatever the reasons for doing it, whatever their motivation was in this horrible sin they're committing, they all felt guilty about what they were doing. They all pulled into themselves the various strategies that people do to deal with the guilt and sin in their life. You feel guilty, and the more guilty you feel, the more you protest loudly that you're innocent. And so Pilate, who made the decision to turn him over to crucifixion, before he did it, washed his hands. I'm innocent of this. And yet, it didn't work. Wash your hands in water, you're still guilty of the crime. Protest your innocence, you're still guilty, and he knew it. And and then the religious leaders that brought the Lord Jesus and sought his crucifixion and orchestrated and planned it and when they were fulfilling their act and bringing him to be crucified, they wouldn't even go into Pilate's chambers in order, in Pilate's court in order to accuse him because they wanted to keep themselves pure for the Passover celebration. That's another thing that people do when they're guilty is they double down in their religion. They double down in the moral activity to somehow whitewash by their morality and by their religion the sins that they know they have. That doesn't work either. They can try that they want. They're still guilty. You'll you'll find that when individuals know that they've sinned and they've broken God's laws and they feel it, that very often they'll become more religious than ever before. Go light a candle or go do something in order to feel better, but it it doesn't work. Again, when the conscience is disturbing a person and you know that you've done wrong, oftentimes you'll attempt to kill it with laughter. That's the predicate between before most of the comedies that you see on television. The idea is if you can laugh at your sin, well, then you can convince yourself that your sin isn't to be taken too seriously. The mocking and the joking that take place at the foot of the cross of Jesus reveal that this age-old strategy is being deployed, and it also reveals that the people are feeling guilty, and no matter whether you laugh at it or not, 
the guilt remains to the end. You need something more than personal declarations of innocence and defenses for your innocence. You need something more than religious or moral cover-ups, and you need something more than just joking away. You need forgiveness. You need forgiveness. Forgiveness, by the way, is not automatic. If it were, Jesus would have offered it instead of praying for it. It's conditional upon our repentance and faith in the forgiver. The ones who are killing the Lord Jesus are not repenting of their actions at the moment. The ones who are killing the Lord Jesus are not believing in him in that moment. He didn't offer them forgiveness in that moment. He prayed for it. He prayed that one day they would come to see their sin and trust in the one who could forgive them of all their sins. And then Jesus rose again from the grave, demonstrating that he had the power to bring the forgiveness that they needed. And so the Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He prayed the prayer for us. He died, and then he rose again as the one who had the power to deliver on the prayer. He alone can forgive us. Yes, there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. Here's the second thing. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. He declares to the thief who had initially been mocking him himself. The great question here is, beyond forgiveness, can I be restored into relationship? When I was a little boy and I did something naughty, I didn't enjoy the spankings that I got, and I got a lot of them. And I also didn't enjoy the scoldings, and I got a lot of those too. But what I didn't like were the words, I'm disappointed with you. They seemed to drive a wedge between me and my parents. I wanted their forgiveness. I wanted forgiveness for my mom, and I wanted forgiveness for my dad in those tender years because I needed to be near them, and I needed to be with them. And you know this is the case, that sin fractures trust it breaks faith with others you sin against another person and it insidiously goes in to destroy the relationship you have with that person it's not a good thing because it's not good for a man to live alone we need one another and sin drives us away from one another and it leaves us alienated beyond the impact that it has interpersonally between ourselves and others it goes out to drive us away from the one who knows us best and loves us the most and desires above all others our good and our fellowship. It drives us from God. Sin drives us from his presence just as it drove Adam and Eve out of the garden. The question is, if God can forgive us and if there is really actual forgiveness to be known between us and others and us and God, can following the forgiveness there be a relationship that's restored, that's realized? And the thief is dying on the cross. And he's been mocking Jesus as he's dying there. And something happens. His mind turns and he comes into repentance. He doesn't blame or excuse himself. He stops his mocking. He confesses that he's actually getting what he deserves in crucifixion. This crucifixion, this suffering, I deserve it, he says. That's repentance. And then he turns to the Lord Jesus and he says, You're returning again to reign in your kingdom Remember me, and that's faith. He wants forgiveness, but he wants something more when he says, Lord, remember me. He's asking for a place in God's kingdom. He's a man who is dying alone on a cross, and at the very end, he's still longing for restoration and relationship. We need it. Even when we're dying, we need it. We need to know that we're connected, and we're engaged, and we're loved. And Jesus answers him and says to him, Today, today, you are returning with me to the garden. That's what paradise means, by the way. 
Today you'll be with me, with me, with me, with me. What a wonderful word, with, in paradise. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead assures us that in believing in him, we will no longer be alienated from God. We will not be alone. We will not be cast out to float in some sea of endless isolation, but we'll be with, we'll be in relationship, not just forgiveness, reconciliation. Next thing that the Lord Jesus says from the cross is, woman, behold your son. To John, John, behold your mother. And this is the third statement. And let's just acknowledge we're practical beings. And the question that's being answered here is, who will provide for us? In life, to some extent, we have to learn to take care of ourselves. But we work in a constant state of dependence. We learn ultimately that we're not self-contained and we're not self sustained creatures only God is self-contained and only God is self-sustained and our needs move from the sublime to the very simple we need bread and we need water and we need homes and we need health and we're fragile beings living in a monstrous world Jesus from the cross while bearing the hellish storm of injustice and sin stops to take care of the need of his mother And he rose again with the assurance that he'll take care of us as well. You'll remember when the Lord Jesus rose again from the grave, he appeared to his disciples. He didn't stay with them all the time. It wasn't steady state where they were with him all the time. He left them to themselves. They didn't know what to do with their lives now. And so they went back to Galilee where they were fishermen. And there were a number of them that were fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And they weren't just sporting. They weren't doing it as a pastime. This was their livelihood. This is how they lived. And they were out fishing. They weren't having any success at all. And... The Lord Jesus appeared on the shore, the risen Lord Jesus, after he'd risen from the grave. He says, why don't you cast your nets over on this side of the boat? And they do, and their nets are filled with fish. And then John recognizes that the Lord Jesus, uh, Peter jumps out of the boat and swims to him. The rest of them haul in, which was kind of selfish of Peter, by the way. All the rest of them had to haul in the fish. And Anyhow, they ultimately get to the shore with their nets full of fish, and the Lord Jesus is there, and he's already started a fire. And he's cooking a meal for them on the beach. It's a small little gesture, and it's full of messaging. There are all kinds of things that we could mine out of that event, but surely it also means this. He's watching over them still, and he's taking care of them, and he's going to meet their needs. This is also something that's within. It's a good thing, by the way, when you want to take care of your family and provide for it and watch over it. I remember when my father was passing away, and he's breathing his last, and he's within the last hours of his life. He's had a stroke, and so he's not thinking clearly, but the one thing he's thinking of over and over again is trying to make sure that we're doing everything we can to provide for our mother. Make sure the oil in the car has been changed. Make sure that there's provision that's made for this life of providing for ourselves and others goes with us all the way to the end. And the question then is still begging, who will continue to provide? You know, you want to provide for your family, but they're likely going to live longer than you. Your ability to provide for them will only go so far. Who will provide for them then? You won't be able to. But he can. He will. He rises from the grave to watch over us and care for us and our basic needs. Paul writes in Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Jesus Christ. (laughs) He's risen a grave. He's risen from the grave. He's risen again to provide, to provide. Here's the next one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The question here is, who will answer the hard questions for us? 
Can there be an explanation for the great complexities of life? Is there someone to give an answer for those moments when you, what is this all about moments in your life? And there are a lot of them. Jesus' cry was a cry for understanding and for a resolution to the confusion and cloudiness that comes to an individual in the midst of personal agony. There's a theological answer for why he cried for this. Of course, he's bearing our sins. He who knew no sin is becoming sin for us. He's taking the judgment that we deserve in order that he might open up a way for us to forgive us. Forgiveness means that you take the payment. The forgiver takes the payment. And on the cross, he's taking the payment for our sins and his suffering. And in that moment of judgment and God's righteous wrath against sin, the Father's face is turned from the Son. And he's experiencing the hell and the alienation that our sin deserves. He's paying the price that brings us, as we said, forgiveness. But something else is taking place also in that moment. As Jesus cries out, his cry reflects the cries that have been wrung from many a broken heart who live in a fallen and broken world because of its complexities and because of its confusions, because of the contradictions and the sufferings that they endure. What? What is happening here? The fact is that we have questions that we don't know how to answer. Questions when justice seems to be denied us. Questions when we can't seem to get a hold of our own selves and understand our own selves. Questions when facing darkness and disappointments that we create or others bring to us, and when the world keeps spinning them out, it's injustices and offenses to us. God, why? What does this mean? Where do I fit into all of this? And most often the answers don't come, and the questions haunt us. And the resurrection promises us that one day we'll get our answers to all of our cries. And all the things that are left unanswered and all the contradictions of life and all of our concerns will be honored by God. The questions we ask are oftentimes not little minor questions. They're deep questions that are probing into the mind of God. And God has created us to connect to Him. God has created us to know Him. And really what we're doing is we're groping for some contact with God in the midst of our darkness. And God does not despise these questions. He'll answer them. He'll answer them. Why we have our moments of forsaking. Actually, if you look at the book of Job, which we're not going to do this morning, it's the oldest book in our Bibles, and Job has been a good man and a righteous man, seemingly so, and yet he's experiencing the loss of everything that he holds dear, and then comforters come to comfort him with no comfort. Their whole theology is, if you're suffering bad things in your life, it's because obviously there's something we don't know about that God does, and he's getting you for it. Job's not willing to yield to their argument. He knows he hasn't really done anything, and he can't understand why God has let these things happen. And he knows as well that death is coming quickly upon him, and he's not going to get his answers. And then he thinks to himself, if life goes down, if I go down into the grave and I go down to the darkness without an answer to these deep and profound questions, then life is meaningless. And life cannot be meaningless. So Job reasons there must be a resurrection. There must be a point in time in which God raises me back from the dead because God knows I need these answers. And I believe God is true and I believe the world has meaning and so God is going to give me those answers. And Job is the first one who brings forward, you might say, the argument for the resurrection and his anticipation for it. And we just sang about it this morning in our worship. Job says in Job 19, 25 and 27, coming to this conclusion, I know that my Redeemer lives. This is his comfort. With unanswered questions, this is his comfort. And he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, 
and my eyes shall behold him and not another. And then he writes, how my heart yearns within me. You know what he's yearning for? An answer to his questions. An answer to the conundrums of life. Jesus' cry reflects the great questions that come upon us in a fallen world where we still grope. We still grope for truth and for God's face. And Jesus' resurrection promises that he holds all the answers. We'll meet him one day before his throne, and on that day all of the earth will have its answers then, and everyone will conclude that the God of all the earth has done right. He was right in all that he did. And it's the hope of the resurrection that keeps us fixed and keeps us going. It's what Paul was referring to in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Listen to these words. He says, for now we see through the glass darkly. That's it. Questions unanswered. But then, face to face. Now I know in part, questions unanswered. But then, I shall know just as also I am known. Paul knew it. Job knew it. Life is meaningless if there are no answers to the hard questions we ask. But Jesus has risen and he has the answers. One day he's going to give them all to us. He's risen. How wonderful, how hopeful. Two more very quickly. Jesus, after his suffering, just as the darkness is dispelling, he's conquered our sin, he's suffered for it. He's borne all of our iniquities and bore God's judgment against that sin As the darkness dispels, he cries out, I thirst. Moisture is brought to him. This is an expression, by the way, the deep longing of the soul to be satiated and to be given fullness and experience life. And Jesus is promising us that as he rises again, he will be the spring of water of life that we shall drink and never thirst again. Because he thirsts on the cross, there is the promise for us that we shall never thirst, but shall experience deep, profound satisfaction. The answer to the question is here, this is, who shall satisfy? Who shall satisfy the deep, profound cravings of my life? Jesus will. He's risen to satisfy those cravings. And then Jesus cries out, it is finished. This is the next declaration. makes. It is finished. And the question here is, is there rest from our work? Life is hard. You get up each day and you make it through the day so you can get up the next day and make it through the next day. Working and laboring to provide for yourself and meet your needs. And you, sometimes you feel like you're on a wheel. You're inside a wheel. And you're just going round and round and round and you're never going to get off and it's exhausting. Add to this, all of the work just to live day in and day out. Add to this, the work that people engage in, not only to live in this life, but hopefully so they can earn the next life. You know, I'm working hard to make it through this life and, and now I've got to work hard to make up for the sins I've committed and try to be a good enough and righteous person so that I can earn salvation. And what a labor that is. What a burden that is. Lord Jesus on the cross is doing the work for us. He's suffering for our sins and he's dying in our place and he's bearing the burden and he's taking the punishment and he's bringing before God the complete and utter righteous life that he lived and he's presenting it as a gift to us. He'll take our sin. He'll take the hard work of bearing our punishment. He'll give us his righteousness. He'll apply to us the hard work of living a righteous life. We'll get covered in his righteousness. And then when he's completed the transaction and made it open to us to receive by faith, he cries out, it's finished. It's accomplished. There's rest from the work. There's rest from the work. In fact, stop working. Stop trying to save yourself. He's done it for you. That's the answer to the question. Here's the last one. The Lord Jesus then says, Father, into your hands I commit 
my spirit? This answers a question, it's this. Is it safe to die? Is it safe to die? Jesus, having paid for our sins, committed his life and his spirit into the hands of the Father. It was a word of profound comfort and resignation. The Bible tells us that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, that God is terrible and awesome and to be feared in his holiness. But if you come to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, if you by faith repent and believe and receive him, there is nothing to fear in death. In fact, for the believer and follower of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, it's called falling asleep. Falling asleep. There's safety there. There are hands extended out to take you and receive you. That's the answer. Yes, there's safety in death. In Jesus Christ, there's safety. He's risen to make it safe to die, to bring us into victory. So there you have it. Forgiveness, relationship with God, provision in life, answers for all your hard questions, satisfaction for your deepest yearnings, rest from the work of saving yourself, safety in death. Answers to all the good questions. There you have it. It's all confirmed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There you have it. Or do you? Do you? You have to repent. It's not on myself. The answer's not here. I can't come up with them. You've risen. You have all the answers. I believe in you. Go get your answers. Let's bow our heads and pray. God, you have moved heaven and earth to bring us to yourself. Your goodness introduces us to possibilities. You also reveal to us the questions we ask. You stir them within us so that we might search and grope and then find the answer in your Son, Jesus Christ. He's come. He's lived. He's died. He's risen from the grave. Thank you, O oh God, for the promise that you answer all, that all is complete in him. God, I would pray in this hour, in this moment, that these very questions we talked about might be aggravated in the lives of those present. Stirred up. Stirred up to the point at which they find resolution in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we'll give you praise for then the salvation and the life that he gives us. We say all these things in Jesus' name, who has risen indeed. Amen. Amen.